morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. I also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. This uh, past year, obviously, has been an experience where a lot of normal life uh, has been shut down. I mean, whole industries have been shut down. And as hard as that's been, and as devastating as that's been to our economy, I think it represents an opportunity for us personally. And that opportunity is to perform a, a kind of personal reset on our own lives. And that's what we're looking at in this message series called Reset. We began uh, the first Sunday of the year talking about the importance of resetting our past. As we move through time, we accumulate more and more guilt over the wrong that we've done, and we also accumulate more and more bitterness over the wrong that's done to us. And this guilt and this bitterness doesn't just go away naturally over time. It needs to be removed. We talked about the only way to really remove guilt and bitterness is through the grace of Jesus Christ. And then the second week, we talked about the importance, Elliot talked about the importance of resetting our minds. We are constantly being bombarded with ideas, suggestions on how we should think. And some of those ideas are actually good and pretty helpful, but a number of the ideas are bad and will really cause damage to us. So the big question we need to ask when it comes to resetting our mind is, what does God think about this? What's his take on this? In order to understand that, Elliot talked about how to use the Bible to reset our thinking. Last week, we continued. I talked about the need to reset our relationships. The Bible is kind of the nutrition part of the Christian diet of spiritual health. Relationships are the exercise part of the Christian diet and the Christian health, spiritual health. So we talked about how to reset our relationships. Now today, we're going to talk about one of the great opportunities I think that COVID is presenting us, and that is to reorder our priorities, to reset our priorities, to reframe what is really, really important. I mean, just think of the number of things that are important now that weren't even on our radar this time last year. I mean, masks, of course, are part of that. I didn't even own a mask a year ago. Now, my car is littered with masks, and there's masks all over. I don't even have to ask my wife anymore, do you have a mask? She goes, they're everywhere. And she's right. Masks are a big thing now. Um, hand sanitizer. You know, that, that's a big deal. We've got it all over the campus here. Outside space like this, is it a premium? It's really important because, of course, the virus is less contagious in an outside environment. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I called up a friend uh, who has a TV outside in his backyard. It's kind of a neat space. And I called him up and asked him if I could watch TV with him. It was particularly the National uh, Football Championship game. I didn't want to watch it alone. And so a few of us gathered in his backyard to watch football outside. And I told him when I got there, I think the last time that I actually asked a friend if I could come over and watch TV, I must have been nine years old the last time I did that. But that's the way this is. So all the things that, you know, are important right now, we know they're going to change eventually and something else will take their place and will be very important, some things that we may not even have thought of. And that's why it's important for us to reset our priorities. Because what's important in the moment is rarely what is actually most important in the long haul. So we need to reset our priorities around what God says is most important. And I think COVID has shined a light on something that is important not only now, but will be important long after we come out of this experience. And that is the importance of life and death. 
Back in March, we were all introduced to what's been referred to as the daily COVID tracker. This is an image of what the Orange County Health Department's version of it is. I don't know how often you look at this. Honestly, I look at it not every day, but most days, all the way from March. I took a break for a little while because it was just getting overwhelming, but now I'm kind of back looking at it again. So on this, there's a lot of data, but the two pieces of data that I think those of us who look at it focus on is, first of all, how many new cases were there in the last 24 hours? And then second, the most sobering one is how many people have died from this disease in the last 24 hours. And it's been a very sobering reminder of the presence of this virus. So a few weeks ago, when the Orange County Register uh, reported on the top two causes of death in this county last year in 2020, I thought for sure that COVID would be on the top two, but it wasn't. The top two killers in Orange County last year were cancer and heart disease. It's the same two that have been at the top of the list for years. I was shocked. But what I realized is COVID has, of course, become our number one health concern, and for good reason, but it's not the number one killer. And part of the reason is this tracker has really focused our attention on this disease and how deadly it can be. And I understand the importance of that. I understand the need for this daily tracker. Because unlike cancer and heart disease, of course, COVID is something that you can catch. It's, it's contagious. Cancer isn't. Heart disease isn't. And so COVID spreads rapidly, and it, there's a greater sense of urgency with this. But it got me thinking, what, if, what would it be like if in addition to COVID, we got a daily report on the other causes of death? What if every day we were told in this county how many people were diagnosed with cancer and how many people had died this last 24 hours from cancer? What if we did the same with heart disease? Well, I think it might begin to sound the alarm and raise the priority of taking steps to mitigate these top two killers. But what COVID has done is it has reminded us of how much we fear death and the links that we will go to in order to save lives. But it turns out the number one killer isn't cancer, it's not heart disease, it's not even COVID. The number one killer, according to God's word, is sin. And that's because sin is the cause of all disease and all death. Sin is what separates us from God, who is the sustainer of life. And when sin came into the world, it brought with it disease and death. So sin really should be our top concern, our top fear. But of course it isn't because, well, like cancer, it's a silent killer. And I think if heaven had a daily COVID-type tracker on sin, we might get a glimpse of how important this is and what a big deal this is. Let's say, for example, we could see the number of people in our community infected by the various strains of the sin virus. What if we could also see on this heaven sin tracker, how many people had actually accepted the only cure for sin, which is Jesus Christ? And then what if we could see the most sobering of all numbers? And that is the number of people who had died in these last 24 hours without taking the cure without Christ. But of course, heaven does not publish a daily eternal life and eternal death tra sin tracker. And I know if, it, if heaven did, if there was such a thing, 
we'd eventually get numb to it, like we're kind of getting numb to the daily COVID tracker. We would go on with our lives, largely blind to the fact that everyone around us is moving one day closer, either to eternal life or to eternal death. That is what is most important. And if we're going to see the people around us like God does, we need to add another dimension to the way we see the people around us. We need to add an eternal dimension to our vision. We tend to think of people primarily in two dimensions. Their appearance, what they look like, and their accomplishments, what they've done. These are the two things that we can see. And that's pretty much all we look at when we see people. But the most important part of anyone's life is not their appearance. It's not what they've accomplished. It's the condition of their relationship with God. That's a dimension that we can't see, even though it's the most important dimension of all. So we tend to miss out on the important part of reality. And it's not until we take an interest in the spiritual dimension of the people around us that we're going to see our world the way God does and the people the way God does. Now, it would be great if we could just purchase one of those 3D glasses. Remember back in the old days when you could go to the theater and sometimes you went to see 3D? You could get a pair of 3D glasses that added a dimension to the two-dimensional movie experience. It'd be great if we could do something like that. There were just some kind of 3D glasses you could put on and you could just see people with this added third dimension. But, of course, that's impossible. It's not that easy. So what I want to do today is I want to challenge us all with three very practical steps and then one warning that will, will help us. The three steps will help us begin to add that dimension as we interact with the people that God puts in our path. Now, each of these items, both the three steps as well as the one warning, they all start with the same letter, D. So let's begin. First step is to develop friendships. Develop friendships. What I'm saying is that we really can't see this third dimension, this spiritual dimension, if we don't care about the people that are around us. We have to, to get to know them. We, we, have to see, we have to actually care about them if we're going to see this. Develop friendships. Now, we tend to do friendships, view friendships, rather, kind of as a, a bucket that represents the need that we have for friends. And the size of our friendship bucket kind of depends on a number of factors. You know, your personality is a big one. If you're an extrovert, you've probably got a pretty big friendship bucket, and it's probably pretty wide. If you're an introvert, you've got a, you know, a narrow friendship bucket, and maybe it's a little deeper. Uh, it depends on the stage of life you're in. It depends on the situation of life that you find yourself in. But once this friendship bucket is full, we tend to not really be that open to get to know anyone else. We're not really that open to any new friends. Now, this is not necessarily something to feel bad about because, you know, there's no need to scroll through Facebook and feel guilty over how many people you have not kept in contact with. The reality is we really do have a friendship bucket. We really do have a capacity limit when it comes to the number of people that we can care about. We can't be best friends with every person we've known since high school. That's not possible. We do have to prioritize the people that we invest in and get to know. But without the spiritual dimension as a filter, the only filter that we will use for deciding who we're going to invest in, who gets in the bucket, and who we don't really care that much about, 
The only way we're going to filter that is the people that we want in there. What's best for us? What, what really helps us? And Jesus is an example to us on how to look beyond just that in the forming of friends. Jesus, unlike us, did not have a need for friends. As God, he was part of the Trinity, the three in one God. What that means is he was one of three, Father, Son, Jesus was the Son, Holy Spirit, one of three relationships so close that it makes up the one God. So Jesus didn't come to earth because he was looking for friends. So why was he known to regularly reach out to people and form friendships? It's not because he needed the friendships. It's because they needed the friendships. This changed the kinds of friends that Jesus formed. And the kind of friendship Jesus formed was a shock to the people that observed him. One of the phrases that was regularly used of Jesus is found in Matthew eleven nineteen when it speaks of this area. He was described in a derogatory way as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was a label that was attached to Jesus that he actually owned and explained. Tax collectors, they were the betrayers of the day, of their community. They betrayed the people in the community they grew up in so that they could collect money for Rome and enrich themselves. People couldn't stand tax collectors. And sinners wasn't just a general category for sinners, because that's everybody. This was used in the time to usually refer to those who had been caught in sexual sin, oftentimes prostitutes. So why would Jesus focus his social calendar on this group? I mean, he did have the disciples, but why was he a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Well, he explained it in one instance where he said it's the sick who need a doctor not the healthy. So I'm looking for people who realize they're feeling the symptoms of this sin disease and they're open to the cure. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking at this spiritual dimension. And the truth is, it's the tax collectors and the sinners that seem to be much more aware of the need for the cure that I come to offer than the religious people of the day. Now, if we view friendship as something that's just for us, we're going to miss this important lesson from Jesus. We'll filter out those that we don't agree with, those we don't click with, those that we are irritated by. Now, it's okay to have friends that encourage you, but, but like Jesus, we need to go beyond just those that encourage us. And this is a challenge because when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the pool of people that you click with are increasingly made up of other people who are following Jesus Christ because you're pursuing the same thing in life. And so what happens is not only is the number of friends that you're interested in getting to know limited by the size of your friendship bucket, it's also limited by the number of people that you agree with. And that would be fine if people were nothing more than what they looked like and what they did, those two dimensions but people are marching to an eternity without God. And that's not just a bad thing. That is a horror beyond our imagination. So while we tend to carefully filter out and filter in who we let into our friendship bucket, those who are far from God are walking right past us. So to be like Jesus, what we need to do is we, we need to be kind of in a, 
heads up, eyes out, continuous search mode to care about and take an interest in and be willing to form friendships with other people around us. Not because we need more friends, but because they do. We need to be looking for people that we can walk over to and, for now, stand six feet away from and say a few words of interest and lend a listening ear. Like Jesus, we need to see beyond this two-dimensional world of who they are right now to who they could be if God got a hold of their lives like he has gotten a hold of ours. Now, honestly, the best way to do this is to start your day and ask God to help you see the people around you this way. And then as you can throughout the day, remind yourself to ask that again. God, help me see the people the way you do. It's very easy just to get caught up in your day and not see the people that are around you. Ask God to open your eyes and then be willing to take an interest. The second D, so the first is develop friendships. The second D is discover stories. Discover stories. Take an interest in the story of their life. Now, this friend of sinners thing that was an a accusation that was made of Jesus really got under the skin of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So they kept devising traps for Jesus, situations that would require him to show some kind of moral outrage against his friends, the tax collectors and the sinners. On one occasion, they brought a woman to Jesus who had just been caught in the act of adultery. The law at that time required that she be stoned to death. So they asked Jesus, what should we do with this woman? Should we continue with the sentence of death? Or what would you have us do? And this was a trap. They thought, oh, we've got him. Let's see this friend of sinners wiggle out of this predicament. And so we read about this in John chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I'd encourage you to go on and read the rest of the story. What eventually happens is one by one, these men step back and fade away and disappear. Why? We're not exactly sure. It had, I think, everything to do with what Jesus was writing on the ground and the point that he made from what he was writing on the ground. We don't know what he wrote on the ground. But a pretty good guess is that he was probably writing something about them that indicted them for their own sin. He was, I suspect, he was writing the names of the men who were standing there who had also committed adultery. Maybe even with this woman. Jesus, in essence, whatever it was he was writing, I think he was forcing them to recall the secret moments of their own life when the story of their life had taken a similar turn as this woman's story. You see, at any point in time, we can look better than somebody else. At this point in time, these men look better than this woman because they had just caught her in the act of adultery. But if you read our entire story, all of our stories, there are moments, and sometimes extended moments, where none of us look that good. And it's our stories 
that show us how we're really not as different from each other as we tend to think. You see, people don't just wake up one day and decide to be the way they are. They have followed a storyline to get there. But we tend to encounter people at a certain point on that line, on that storyline. And so we have kind of a snapshot. You know, we, what, how they look and what we know of what they've done. That's our snapshot. And if we evaluate that snapshot, shot, then we, we miss out on the person. And we're not seeing that third dimension. But if we pause long enough to hear their story, we can find points where our lives intersect with their lives. It's at the story level that friendships grow. It's at the story level that we really start caring for other people and stop categorizing them. A couple of weeks ago, I got a flat tire on my bike, and so I took it into a bike shop to get it fixed, and we were talking about you know, what needed to be done, how much it would cost. And I decided, I mean, God just convicted me. I, I need to take an interest. I'm trying to do this more in this season especially. So I asked him, how, how has the year been for you this past year? And all of a sudden, we went from a flat tire conversation to a more personal conversation. And I, I knew this in my head, but I got a firsthand account of how rough it's been to be in retail this year. He went on to tell a few stories of, customers, you know, I don't know if you know this about bikes, but they're hard to come by now. And so customers would come in wanting something, and he couldn't get it for months, and then they would just load off on, they would just dump on him. And he said, you know, I've sold more than I've ever had, but it's been the hardest year of my life. So I told him a little bit about kind of my experience, and we, we shared, maybe just for 10 minutes or so. And at the end, as I was getting ready to leave, he said, you know what, I need to focus more on people like you. I don't know where that's going to go, but I think it's going to go somewhere. Just because I decided to do more than just get a flat tire fixed. I decided to put on the 3D glasses and just wonder about this individual and ask some questions. So that's Discover Stories. The third step is discern next steps. What do we do next? You know, you've taken an interest in someone, you've struck up maybe a conversation, and now the interaction isn't over. Oh, is over, like with the bike shop friend. But what now? Well, for one thing, I've decided I'm not going to buy any more bike stuff on Amazon. I'm going to go to this guy just so we can have some more interaction. But what now in the friendships that you've formed and the people that God has drawn you to reach out to? Well, sometimes you may not see them again, so there's nothing else to do. But often you have begun something or you're continuing something, and it'll be someone you'll see again. The tendency is to not think about next steps. To kind of be surprised the next time we see the person and just enter the conversation without any thought, pre-thought, with any pre-prayer, without any intention, just letting it go where it goes. But there's always an opportunity to take some steps and move people towards maybe a spiritual conversation. There are two kinds of next steps to take, and they're found in the book of 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul. 
He describes how the people in the church in Corinth became followers of Jesus Christ. And this one phrase is really fascinating in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. He says, I planted a seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So there's, there's two steps. There's the planting seed step, and then there's the watering step. The planting seed step, well, that's the seed of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth about who he is and the forgiveness that he offers. The watering part, that's the relationship that helps nourish the seed. In this case, in Corinth, for the better part of two years after Paul had planted the seed of the gospel, Apollos was the one who spent two years in the city of Corinth to deepen the relationships and to answer their questions about Jesus and his love for them. And as a result of the seeds that have been planted and the watering that Apollos had done, God is the one who brought life out of that seed. He made it grow. Only God can affect change in a person. We can't. But the seed needs to be planted, and it needs to be watered. What happens first? Well, all the gardening going on this year, I think everybody knows, first you plant the seed, then you water it. So the first thing that happens is the planting. So if you have a, a bunch of friends that as far as you know, they're not really that concerned about a relationship with God, and they don't really know that you follow Jesus Christ, guess what it's time for you to do? Plant some seeds. You've been watering the ground, but there's no seeds there. You've got to plant some seeds. It could be something as simple as just identify with Christ. There's a lot of ways you can let people know you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You can just bring it up in a conversation. Tell them as a part of your story. You can offer to pray for them. That lets them know that there's something spiritual going on here. You can invite them to church. You can eventually explain to them the truth about Jesus Christ. Those are all seed steps. But if the seed has been planted and there appear to be no signs of spiritual interest, well, it's time to water. When you water a seed, you're providing what's helpful for that seed to grow. So what's helpful when it comes to this area for growth? Trust, the deepening of a relationship. You see, when someone is far from God, it's like there's this big chasm between them and between God. That may be an idea chasm. In other words, they've got some ideas over here that are very different than God's ideas over here, and they just can't figure out how this makes any sense. So they're stuck on, they've got questions. They've got an idea chasm. It may be a, a fear chasm. You know, they, they kind of know how, and they've structured the life, life, you know, a certain way over here, but when they think about following Jesus Christ, they probably know a lot of people who are kind of weird who do this, and so they're kind of afraid. Now, am I going to get weird if I do this, and what will my life look like? There's a fear chasm. Maybe a guilt chasm. You know, they, they feel so bad about some things in their life, they think, you know what, there's just no hope for me. The, 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 the guilt is just too massive and can't be overcome. But then they meet someone who they find out is on the other side of this chasm. Someone that they trust. Someone that they maybe like a little bit. And that relationship across that chasm is like a bridge that helps them get from where they are to where God wants them to be. And on that bridge, questions can be asked. And on that bridge, they can get an idea of what it might look like to follow Jesus Christ as they look at your life. And the strength of that bridge 
whether it's just a little, you know, one of those bouncy suspension bridges that feels like it's going to break, kind of trust, or whether it's a massive concrete and suspension bridge. That's the strength of the relationship. The question they always have is, are you someone that really cares about me? And are you someone that I have some respect for? That takes time to develop. So discerning next steps, whether there's some seeds to be planted or whether there's some trust to be built, water to be done, that takes time. That takes thought. That takes prayer. And that brings us to the fourth D, which is distraction. The primary reason we don't develop friendships, we don't take the time to discover stories, we don't discern next steps and take next steps in these relationships is because of distraction. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul gives us all some great advice about how to relate to what he calls outsiders. Outsiders are simply people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. They're outside of the faith. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 12. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now that first phrase sounds kind of odd. It says, make it your ambition did you think it was going to follow with to lead a quiet life? Does that sound ambitious to you? Have you ever heard anyone say, you know, my big dream in life is to lead a quiet life? I mean, maybe in your 60s and 70s, but you hear no one in their 20s say, you know, this is my big ambition. I'm dreaming big. My goal is to lead a quiet life. That doesn't sound very ambitious. But quiet is not primarily about sound. I talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the word quiet. Quiet in the New Testament is primarily the absence of drama. That's what quiet means, the absence of drama. Make it your ambition to not live a dramatic life with all kinds of drama, drama and all kinds of emotional bizarreness. So what is it that determines the level of drama in your life? Well, that's the next phrase, to mind your own business. If you want to crank up the drama in your life, start messing with some stuff that's not your own business. The drama will go up. If you want to dial down the drama, just get back to what's your own business. So how do you know what's your own business? It's what you have the responsibility for and can do something about. The next phrase describes what your own business is. It's what you can get your hands on. It's what you can work with with your hands. It's not just talking about the trades or or labor, you know, we use our hands to accomplish something within our reach, something that we're responsible for, that we can do something about. And the result of minding your own business is what? Your respect with the outsiders will grow. Now let me apply this to this year. Has this been a year of high drama or low drama? High drama. Lots of drama. What that means is we have spent so much time talking about stuff that we have so little control over. And the only thing you can do when you can't really do anything about it is just get louder and angrier. More drama. Yeah, so we've, we've had the drama of politics. Now we're in the drama of the vaccine distribution or whether we should take the vaccine or not. 
So what we've spent, I'm including myself in this, we've spent a lot of this last year ranting. Rant is when you talk about stuff you can't do anything about. You rant. And in the process, and I want you to hear this very carefully, speaking as your pastor, we have lost sight of what is important. I'm not saying we don't need to deal with any of these things, but I'm cautioning us. We have lost sight of what's important. So let me make this personal, because this has been a conviction point for me. Let's say if there was a daily Bevan drama tracker, I shudder to think what it would reveal. I've thought about this. If you were to track the number of hours that I've spent thinking and ranting about COVID, about politics, then if you were to compare the number of hours I've spent thinking and praying about the people that God had placed in my life, in my path. When I first thought of this, it brought me to tears because it was so convicting. So I challenge us all, let's make it our ambition to lead a much quieter life to mind our own business, which, let's be honest, should keep us plenty busy. So that we might win the respect of outsiders. And remember, these are not people who are outside of our little Christian club. These are people who are outside the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, the only hope that we all have. That's a horrible outside. So let's put on our 3D glasses and let's begin to pray about and look for and see people around us the way God sees them. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we are so easily distracted. The enemy can drag almost anything in front of our nose, and we will turn our heads and our hearts will twist in that direction. And so today, we push the reset button on what's important. And we look at the life of Jesus Christ who came to earth at a time when the political environment was absolutely horrendous. And when the death toll, the daily death toll from disease was much higher than it ever is in any modern world, even during a global pandemic. And he continued to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, help us to see the people you've put around us the way you see them. Help us to not just wake up, charge into the our day, get what we want, and then come home. Help us to buy up the opportunities to care about the people around us, to discover their stories, and to prayerfully discern what the next steps might be as you provide opportunities. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our friend and our Savior. Amen.